All right, man. Quiet it down. It's going to get hot in here. I have a feeling already. So, you guys get a, you get a souvenir for attending. So, these are linchpins. I'm going to explain it all, but if you want to open it up and pick one out and pass it around, there's about 65 there. So, I think every dude gets one. It's going to be your, your memento. So, welcome back, men. This is our third teaching. Linchpin men. So we've talked about things we need to focus on as parents. We've talked about things we need to focus on with younger children. Now we're going to talk about what it means to be a dad. And then our last session, we're going to talk about teenagers. So that's where we're going for the four parts. So we're going to talk about being linchpin men. You guys know what a linchpin is? So on, it's a pin passed through the end of an axle to keep a wheel in position or a person vital to an enterprise or organization. So. That's the linchpin right there on the end of the axle. It's holding the wheel in place. There's that kind of linchpin. There's that kind of linchpin. So you men are the linchpin of your family. You're the linchpin of your job, and you're the linchpin of our church. So I want you all to have a linchpin. You can put it in your car, put it at your desk, put it at your work, wherever. Just put it somewhere to remind yourself that, hey, I'm the linchpin. I'm the guy that holds this all together. My son and I were watching a movie uh, a while ago for his birthday. And at the end of the movie, my son, who was nine at the time, he said, that movie was all about, is the dad going to engage? And he was like, a lot of movies are like, is the dad going to engage? My son was totally right. You are the linchpin to everything we're talking about. When a dad engages like he should with his family and his work and his church, things just start moving in the right direction. You're the linchpin. I think of a brother, a good friend of mine, went to this church for years. Years and years ago, he would come to church occasionally. By his own admission, he drank too much. He worked too much. He was disengaged from his family. They basically disappeared. They're doing super bad. I hadn't talked to him for a season. And then it like clicked in his mind. He's like, wait a minute, I'm the linchpin. And it was unbelievable to see how his entire family just 180. Suddenly they're showing up at church every week. His kids are starting to grow in obedience. His marriage suddenly becomes so strong that he and his wife started to disciple couples in our church. He's leading a small group. It was all because he realized, well, I'm the linchpin. I'm the man that God has created for this moment to hold us all together. So we're going to talk about what it means to be a linchpin with your work, with our church, and with your family. So I'm going to pray. We're going to unpack those three. So, Lord, I thank you for a room of 60 of my brothers that are invested in parenting, Lord, that want to be here, that want to grow as dads and husbands. God, I ask that you would speak through me right now to my brothers, that you would teach them, you would show them, you would encourage them, you would challenge them where they need to be challenged. We say all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So does this have a biblical basis? I believe it does. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Okay, right now, I don't care if you want to be a pastor or not, but I believe that the pastor character qualities presented in Timothy and Titus and Peter outline God's plan for what it means to be a godly man of character or a linchpin man. I believe these character qualities outlined in these qualifications are God's standard. And so... Whether or not you want to be a pastor is kind of a secondary question. But I'll tell you this, Bill and Mac and Steele and Caleb and Billy and Brian and Tony and I would be stoked if we had 60 men in our church that had pastoral character qualities. 
That would be unbelievable. So the three main passages in the Bible that talk about this are in 1 Peter, Timothy, and Titus. Here it is on one slide. That's it's on your hand out there too, John. That's seven-point font. If you need it. Yeah, thanks. Yep. Magnifiers. <laughs> so I've been studying this passage for 26 years, and I've done a bunch of pastoral training classes on it, biblical eldership classes. And when I meet with men, my mind goes to these passages in Timothy and Titus and Peter, because this is God's standard for a godly man. These are the men that God wants to lead His church, the linchpin men. So. My prayer for years before I was ever a pastor was, God, make me into the man presented in Timothy and Titus and Peter. So I think that as you read those over and you study those, I think there's clearly three areas. The man is killing it with his work, he's killing it with his church, and he's killing it with his family. He's a linchpin in all three. When I wake up in the morning, I'm praying, Lord, bless me in my pastoring and bless me as a husband and bless me as a father and bless me in my engineering. God, give me grace to honor you in all of these areas. Now, this is the formula for a worldly man. A worldly man is succeeding at his work and his hobbies. Thank you. Welcome. Most dudes are like, church, forget that one. Wife and kids, super hard. Can't figure out the wife, can't figure out the kids. I'll just pour my life into my job. I have a little free time, I'll pick up a hobby. That's how the average dude defines his life. But for the mature Christian man, he's different. You drop hobbies, you pick up your family, you pick up your church, and those three are intention. And I'll be honest, man, I don't know many men into their 60s, 70s, and 80s that are killing it in all these areas because it's challenging. When you're a single dude, you just have work and church. And when you get married, you add your family. But a godly man is succeeding in his work, his church, and his family. So I've been in all the stages you guys have been. Years ago, I was a full-time engineer. I was not a pastor. And then I became a volunteer pastor. I was a full-time engineer. And then I was a, just a full-time pastor, and I didn't do any engineering. And now I'm a full-time pastor, and I do some part-time engineering. And during that time, I went from zero kids to five kids. So I know the pressures and burdens you brothers are feeling to love your wife and raise your kids and work your job and serve the Lord. And the sad fact is I don't know very many men they're killing it in all three of these areas. Why is that? Because it's really hard. I know a ton of men that are just like, I'm going to kill it at my job. Or maybe I'm going to kill it at my job. I'm going to kind of be a decent husband. I'm going to forget the church. It's just all three pull at us. And there's a tension we feel in all three of these areas. Again, the worldly man, he's like, forget church, forget wife. I'm just going to have my hobbies and my job. This is not for the lazy man. I remember in grad school years ago, I was working on my thesis and I'm working a job and married and leading a small group. So I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm a more hardworking man. And my wife and I, in the middle of a conflict, my new wife turned to me and she's like, you're lazy. And I, I was so indignant in my heart. I was like, oh, you woman. <laughs> Ridiculous. But I knew exactly what she was talking about. Because she had wanted to go visit her grandpa and grandma and I had played video games during the week and it rolls into Saturday. And she's like, let's go visit Grandpa and Grandma. I'm like, I'm sorry. i got to do a bunch of homework. She's like, what were you doing all week? I, yeah. God convicted me in that moment. If be a linchpin man is a hardworking man. I read the average man spends four hours a day on his phone, three hours a day watching shows. And I'm sure there's overlap on those two. But the point is, we have time. 
My prayer, as I teach you men, my prayer preparing for this moment right now is that you men would see the nobility of succeeding in all three areas, your family, your church, and your work. And that God would show you how to grow in becoming a linchpin man in those areas. And there is a balance here. This is kind of one of my life verses in Nehemiah 4.9. The Israelites were trying to rebuild Jerusalem. They hear that there's enemies coming. They're trying to rebuild the wall. They hear the bad guys are coming to destroy their work to rebuild the city. Nehemiah 4.9, we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. I love that verse. The bad guys are coming. We've got to pray, and we've got to have a guard. We've got to have some guys with weapons. That's where I want to sit, right in that verse. God, I need your help. Help me, Lord. I've got to post a guard. And so I want to be a man that's praying to God and posting a guard at the same time. It's not either or. It's dependence on God and it's self-discipline. So you could have one guy who's like, I'm going to watch some golf. God will take care of my family. He's sinning. The other dude's working 70, 80 hours a week, never prays, never takes a break. He's a workaholic. He's also sinning. They've got to be disciplined, hard workers, depending on God. They're not exclusive. So let's talk about the first area. Let's talk about being a linchpin at church. So what would define a man who viewed the Rock Church as his church? He'd be like, this is my church. I'm loyal to it. I'm serving here. I'm using my gifts at his core. He'd just be like, I'm here to serve the people of God. He'd be accountable. He'd be involved in men's lives. He'd be growing as a believer, reading the word and praying. He'd be looking for people at church to disciple. He'd be thinking about the lost people around him. He'd be praying for them. He'd be the kind of guy that if... A dude was dying, he'd be like, I want my son to hang out with that guy because that guy will teach him what it means to be a man committed to the people of God. He'd never be like, eh, I don't feel appreciated, I don't feel valued. He'd be like, you know, this is, this is my house, this is my church, and I'm serving these people. So I believe you see that in the pastoral character qualities in 1 Peter 5. It says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but, but being an example to the flock. So you, if you're going to be recognized as a pastor, your life should be an example to the church or the people of God. So for my wife and I, for 23 years now, as husband and wife, we've been building our life around serving the people of God. We try to, in a typical week, have three or four nights a week where we're just home as a family of all the character stuff and training and fun and all that stuff. And we try to have two or three nights a week that we're involved in the people of God. So we got men's meetings or small group or youth group or church. So week to week, mapping out my life and going, all right, how can I have some family time? And how can I be involved in the people of God on a weekly basis? When I was a volunteer pastor, full-time engineer, I tried to grab lunch with one guy a week coffee or breakfast or lunch to connect with him, to get to know a guy in the church, to disciple him, let him disciple me. Now, could a guy not be killing it at his church, obviously? Could a dude be too into his church? That is possible. I've met guys that are just like, I'm going to, this is more of a pastoral struggle, but a guy that's like, I'm going to just bury myself in the church, I'm going to kill it at my church, and I'm going to sacrifice my family. That dude's a fool. He's disqualifying himself from leading God's people because he's not winning with his family. But some guys go there because they're like, there's spiritual things and there's unspiritual things. Like when I'm discipling people or reading my Bible or praying, that's spiritual. But if I'm just like changing my kid's diaper, that's unspiritual. But that's not true. It's all honoring the Lord. Sometimes the godliest thing you can do is wipe your kid's butt and like change their diaper. We stratify. We're like, 
God loves me when I'm reading his Bible. He loves you all the time, man. He loves you when you're working hard at your job, when you're talking to your wife, when you're playing with your kids. You can be a powerhouse at church, but don't disqualify yourself because you've like sacrificed your family for your church. Could a dude not be into church enough? Yeah, those dudes are a dime a dozen. Lazy, uninvolved, not loving the people of God. I love this verse in Galatians 6. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, as I wrap this point up, for you men, what would greater faithfulness, church faithfulness for you look like? Our church needs more and more linchpin men. God is doing something amazing in this church. All of the new people coming, all of the people that don't know the Lord, all the people that need to be discipled, If 60 dudes walk out of this room, they're like, man, this is my church, these are my people, and this is my house. Like, God will do some even more amazing things through this room. All right, let's go to area number two. What does it mean to be a linchpin at your job or at your work? What would a linchpin man look like at his job? He'd be like the hardest worker in the office. He would know I'm working for Jesus, not for my boss. He would be a man of integrity. He wouldn't be dinking around on his phone, dinking around on the internet. He would be praying for his coworkers. He wouldn't be stealing from the company. He'd be working hard even when the boss wasn't watching him. We see the importance of this, again, in the pastoral qualifications. 1 Timothy 3, if you're considering a man to be a pastor of the church, he must have a good reputation with outsiders. That's your coworkers. That's the people that you're around all the time at your job. Do your coworkers think you are hardworking and ethical and loving? What's your reputation at your job? You know what is bizarre to me is what I would consider like the, the minimum standard makes you exceptional today. You show up on time, you work really hard, you listen to your boss, you have a good attitude, you're exceptional. I think that back in my day, that was the minimum standard. But now you're exceptional. The Bible is pro hard work. There's so many verses. I love this verse. I share it a lot. And all hard work, there's a profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. You got it. You get it. You got to work hard. If you're not working hard, man, you're a sinner. You're not being a linchpin. My dad trained this into me as a boy. We had a little acreage with a barn. My dad would take me out to that barn every day. We'd do like an hour of work, and he made up the work most of the time. He's like, let's go outside. I'm like, I was trying to like, I'm just a teenage kid. I'm like, what are we going to do out there? He's like, I'll tell you when we get there. <laughs> And he's like, let's clean this pen. I'm like, I just cleaned it three days ago. He's like, let's clean it again. Then after that, he trained me how to work hard on the farm. And then my dad got me a job working for a landscaping company, putting in sprinklers 40, 50 hours a week. It's like 90 degrees out. The sun's beating down on me. I'm literally digging a hole to plant a tree. I'm like, I've got to figure out a better job opportunity. <laughs> so then I go to college. And I realize success in college is about working hard like studying, putting in the hours, grinding it out. When I was in high school, I never studied. I got like A's and B's. When I went to my undergrad, I studied like a few hours and got A's and B's. When I went to grad school, working on my master's, I was like, oh, I gotta study a couple days if I'm actually gonna pass this test. And now I'm 23 years into my engineering career and most of my success is because you just show up and work really hard. When I was a full-time engineer, I was the first or second person in the office. I, engineering is all about billability, so I was trying to be as billable as possible. I would walk around the office so fast they told me they were going to put a cowbell on me so I wouldn't crash into somebody. <laughs> I worked through lunch, and what was in the back of my mind was my boss was working 60, 70, 80 hours a week as an engineer. 
He said, Josh, I want to make you the owner of this company. I want to sell it to you, but you got to work more. Like, come in on Saturdays and Sundays. And I was like, oh, I can't. I was like, I'm a family man. I'm a church man. So I was like, I'm going to just be the greatest employee you've ever seen in your 45 hours, and then I'm out. And so I'd like show up early, crank from 6.30 to 3, and then I'm out. Josh, we're doing so much work on Sunday. Sorry, man. My wife would kill me. But I was like, I'm a church man. I'm a family man. But I cranked for those 40 hours, and they loved me, and they cried when I left, Pastor. <laughs> Actually, when I quit, they told me, we're going to give you a 30% raise if you stay. And my wife wisely said, you should have fake quit years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Hard work leads to a profit. So, you know, work, I think, is an area that most men succeed at because it's a real simple formula. If I show up and work really hard, they promote me and I make more money. Dudes are like, I get it. <laughs> Wife, way harder. Kids, super complicated. So dudes, like, my marriage is subpar. I'm going to bury myself in my job. My kid's kind of annoying me. I'm going to bury myself in my office. But it's a balance of these three. I think the biggest temptation for men is to bury themselves at the job at the expense of their family. And I think it comes down to hours. I think your hours, one dude could be killing it in all three, but he can only do 40, 50 hours at his job. Another dude might go 60 hours at work, and he's still on top of his family and church. I think you're going to start feeling the pain at 60, 70, 80 hours at your job. You will not succeed with your family or your church how I'm doing with my wife, how I'm doing with my kids helps me quantify how many hours I should be putting in at the office. Even as a pastor, when I have a week that goes to 70, 80 hours, I instantly feel it with my family. Because I'm just, I'm like so consumed with a special thing, a busy time at church, I instantly feel it with my kids' attitudes and their character and my connection with my wife. Another piece of this is travel. Some jobs require us to travel a lot. I remember there was a guy in our church years ago. He would travel for a week every month. And the week before, he's gearing up, and then he's gone for a week, and then the week after, he's catching up. And he's like, this is like wrecking me for three out of four weeks. And so he sat with his boss. He said, you've got to find me a new position that doesn't travel as much. When you do that, you might want to have, to have, you might have, to have your resume ready to roll because it might just can you. But they worked with him. They made it work. Another piece of this is your commute. If you're driving 10, 20 hours a week, that time has to come from somewhere. So let's math it. Every one of us has 168 hours a week. You're sleeping 50 hours a week, eight hours a week of grooming. That might seem high, but Brian's there. <laughs> you were the first one I said. Right, 10 hours a week of commuting. 50 hours a week of working, that leaves 50 hours a week for everything else. The world will not argue with us at all on the first 115 hours. But the last 50 hours is where loving your wife, training your kids, playing with your kids, serving the church, fixing stuff around your house, everything that you want to do outside of like sleeping, driving, showering, and work is coming out of that 50 hours there at the bottom. So I, mean, I want you men to see the nobility of your work right now. I remember so many times as an engineer, I had these like moments where I was like, right now, I'm like engineer, making money, witnessing to my coworker. I'm like praying for these unbelievers. I'm an example of Jesus Christ to these people. I'm providing for my family. I'm serving the church. I'm like 
all of these things are happening in my job. There's incredible nobility. You can support the church, support your family, witness to people, honor the Lord at your job. It's amazing. One word on laziness, 1 Timothy 5, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. An unbeliever could die at any moment and go to hell. So I don't know what's worse than that, but apparently if a man's not providing for his family, it's worse than that. So if you ever are in a place because of financial hardship, men, then you do, oh, I'm going to have to work two jobs for a season to take care of my family. But most men I know, like meeting with you men, men in the church, other guys, like most of us are not tempted by being lazy. Most of us are tempted by being workaholics. I think it runs like 10 workaholics to one lazy man. That's my ratio. So next question, in what area do you sense God is asking you to work harder? How can you be a linchpin man at your job, at your office, at your company? Okay, our third and final area, being a linchpin man with our family. <coughs> Again, you see this is in the pastoral character qualities. 1 Timothy 3, if you're considering a man to be a pastor of the church, he must manage his family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. So if you're going to recognize a man as a pastor... He needs to be succeeding with his family. So in other words, if you're not winning with your family, you're disqualified from pastoral ministry. God is so wise. He's like, if this man can't even manage his little flock, don't give him a big flock. So what would define a linchpin man? Let's talk about our marriage first. You'd be living out Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Most men are like, check doing it. <laughs> Most men think their marriage is pretty good. Like if I gave you all a piece of paper, write on a piece of paper, on a scale of 1 to 10, how good is your marriage? Most men would be like, oh, I don't want to be proud, but 9, <laughs> 8. Like that's the sense I get from most men. They're like, we're doing pretty good. If I quizzed our wives in the other room, it would depend on the day, or the moment, or the hour, or what you just did. But it could be anywhere from a 1 to a 10, depending. God has given us a wife as like a marriage barometer. Like, a mar- like she is like a readout on the health of your relationship. Men are like, everything's fine. But I've seen, sadly, too many times where the husband thinks everything's fine and the wife is struggling. The wife is like, we're not doing fine. God gave us this marriage thermometer. So, if you're brave, ask your wife. Hey, wife, use her name. On a scale of one to ten, on a scale of one to ten, how's our marriage? She's like, you seven, right at seven. What's one thing I could do to move it up? And don't ask her when you bought a bunch of roses and like cleaned the house and took the kids to the park and took her on a date. Ask her if you're really brave when you know she's a little unhappy with you. And here's the key: when she gives you input on how to be a better husband, put it into practice. Follow the example of Christ. I had a former friend of mine who was a workaholic. He was working 70, 80, 90 hours a week, just working all the time. And I would ask him, like, how's your marriage? And he knew that was my question, and so he rigged it. He would work like 80, 90 hours, and then he'd go home and be super dad. He'd like take the kids to the park, he'd clean the house, he'd take his wife on a date, and he'd like do all this amazing training of his children, and then he'd be like, wife, how are we doing, baby? She's like, we're at 10. He's like, Josh, I asked her last week, we're at a 10. He was rigging the question. He was a workaholic. Eventually, he cheated on his wife. His marriage fell apart. It broke my heart. It broke many of your hearts. 
Don't be afraid to ask your wife, how are we doing? How can I grow as a husband? I read this verse, I see a husband who doesn't make excuses. He loves his wife. He serves her like Christ serves the church. I don't see a man who's like sucked the life out of his wife by not listening to her. If your marriage is bad, it's because you're a bad husband. God has made our wives to follow us. They respond to our leadership. They will follow you into godliness or they will follow you into sin. So I want to say this. This is like a high-level editorial comment. You should be aware of your wife's emotions, but your wife's emotions should not define reality. You should be aware. When your wife is crying, you should be like, uh-oh, danger. But whatever she's saying right now may or may not be 100% reality. Okay? A wise husband is simultaneously sensitive to his wife's emotions and tears and feelings, but he's also objective enough to go, not the worst husband in the history of husbands, <laughs> but I should have not been so rude after work today. <laughs> if you serve your wife like this, there's nothing you won't do for her. You work all day at the office, you come home, drop your phone in your desk, you take the kids to a park, you have the kids picking up the house, you're talking to your wife, you're helping clean up the dishes, you're changing a diaper, you're moving those boxes she asked you to box, you're asking her how her day went, you're disciplining the kids, you're reading the kids a book, you're taking point on the kids getting in bed, and then the really hard stuff, where she's like, I want to talk about this thing. Ah. And you're like, oh, not the thing. <laughs> she's like, I have a thought about what you just did. They're like, oh, no, not that. Or there's something going on in her life that's super discouraging. You're like, I'd rather not talk about it, but that's what's going on in your life, so I'm going to ask you, how's the thing going? My wife has walked through some trials over the last number of years, and there's so many times I've said to her, how's the thing going? Are you discouraged? Are you encouraged? Because I'm going to wade in there. I don't want to. I want to sit on my bed and read my book. That's all I want to do at the end of the day. There are times that my wife will turn to me and be like, oh, I want to talk about Aiden or Haley or Elias. And I'll be like, close the book, sit up. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? All I want to do in my flesh is like, it's bedtime. I'm reading my book. I'm going to sleep. But I need to engage with my wife and love her in that moment. My first year or two of marriage was rocky. We had all these conflicts and fights because God was just grinding on this in my heart. Am I going to love my wife like Christ loved the church? I remember in a conflict, I said to my wife so humbly, I'm better than every husband you know. <laughs> and she, that's like an insight into my brain right there. And she said to me, I don't care. Your standard is Jesus Christ. <laughs> Some of you think, if I serve my wife like this, she will nag me to death. My wife doesn't nag me. Because if you serve her like Christ, she'll be like, oh, wait a minute. He's trying to be godly. I need to out-godly him. And then you get in this really awesome, like, gaining altitude thing. Versus you're being fleshy, I'll show you fleshy, husband. And then you start getting in this death spiral. This doesn't make sense to the world, but this is how it works in God's book. Luke 17, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. Men, if you give up your rights, you get them back. If you cling to them, you'll lose everything. So here's the question you can practice with your wife later. Wife on a scale of 1 to 10, how healthy is our marriage? And what is one thing I could do to improve it? I use this question 
all the time as a newly married husband to like start to fine tune my wife radar, to learn how to love my wife. <coughs> now, could a dude be too into his wife? I think if a wife is going to respect us, she's going to see us succeeding with our job and with the kids and with the church. I do know a few couples where they just would like watch a show every night or go on a date and eventually their relationship broke down because she lost respect for him. She's like, you're not engaged with your job or your church and her respect for her husband diminished. There's something so beneficial about being on mission together as a couple. And there are seasons of rest, but our wives will respect us more if we're linchpins in all three areas. And I have realized that succeeding with Krista frees me up in all these other areas. My wife isn't jealous of my work because I prioritize her. She's not arguing with the time I put in at church because she knows that I listen to her. I receive her feedback and coaching on stuff. My success or my health in my marriage frees me up with my church and my kids and my job. So let's talk about kids. Obviously, we're talking a lot about kids, so I just want to make a few comments about this. Could a man, what would define a man who was a linchpin with his children? He'd be leading his family, praying for his kids. He'd be training them, disciplining them. He would understand, I'm shaping your picture of Heavenly Father. He would be engaged with them in all stages of life. He'd be loving his kids. He'd be striking the balance of this verse, which we'll come back to after lunch. Ephesians 6, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. He'd see the nobility of being dad. Like the most godly thing I can do right now is read this little book to my kiddo. You know, man, I want to say this. When they're like 0 to 10, they're simpler than when they're 10 to 19 or 10 to 18. It just becomes more complicated to connect with them and love them and communicate with them. And I think, men, that the teenage years are absolutely go time for dads. I feel like 0 to 10-ish, you're there, you're in the trenches, but mom has so much of that feeding and educating, and she's just there with it all the time. But when they enter those teenage years, I just sense, like, this is time for Krista to take a step back and me to take a step in because it's absolutely go time right now. Just three thoughts on this. I have to lead. I don't know what your wife is like, but my wife has a million ideas about a million things that we could be doing with our kids and family. And they're all great. But I have to, it is so easy for me to be passive as a dad. Be like, yeah, Krista's got a good plan. Krista's got a good thought. Krista's got a good idea. Instead of me being like, no, this is my family. I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for how I led this family. It says, the husband is the head of the wife. I'm going to someday stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for how I led this family. I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ and be like, you should ask her. She was calling the shots. Now, if I'm the head, if I'm the leader of this family, I should be leading. Two, I need to engage as soon as I come home. When I walked in the door, I set my phone down. I would take my paddle, put it in my back pocket, hide it under my shirt. It was like my office phone down, paddle in back pocket, the sheriff's back. Like it was this like mental thing that I did in my mind. I missed breakfast and lunch Monday through Friday. Dad needs to be engaged dinners and weekends. Diapers, meals, bedtimes, training, teenagering. Engaging with your kids in a powerful, intentional way separates the men from the boys in this room. Read to them, play with them, love them, discipline them. And then my third thought for you as a dad is grow as a dad. Always be like continuing education kind of perspective on dad. The last page of your handout, fantastic books. I could send you some parenting sermons. 
you guys are here at this conference. It's super encouraging. Buy like one book and read it and just be a guy that's learning what does it mean to be a better dad. So could a guy be so into his kids that he's like failing with these other areas? I've never met him. He's a unicorn. He doesn't exist. I think most men are way on the other end of the spectrum. They're like the wife, she's on it with the kids. Kids are her thing. I'm in my job. Wife has the kids. I can't quantify the time you spend because every family is different. Success for you will look different than the brother sitting beside you because your wife is different. Your kids are different. But you'll invest the time to succeed with your family. I have a few concluding thoughts. I feel like you're getting hit with a shotgun in all these teachings. So I appreciate Steele's thought. I just go, Lord, give me one thing to lock into out of maybe each session. And I think it's so important you guys build a week and a month and a year with Sabbaths and holidays and vacations because I'm talking about a marathon. This is like a marathon we're presenting. So you should be taking like every week multiple nights off. Every week have like a day off. Every few months, you're taking a vacation. You're just building a life that has Sabbaths. It says that Jesus would go up into the mountains to pray and to be alone. Like, build a life that has Sabbaths and rest and breaks. Krista and I have like a weekly huddle where we sit down. We have her calendar, my calendar. We compare notes, kids, school, work, church, projects. And we're like, oh, this is move that, can't do that. We're like trying to move through this week, this life that God has given us in a real deliberate way. And I, guys, I take nights off and days off every single week. I'm going to show you my hours. Like, I didn't do anything that night and nothing that night. The kids and I played a game, went to bed. I read a book, went to bed. I watched a movie, went to bed. Like, we're deliberate to have quiet times every week and have quiet days. But then I'm burning the others, the other times. This Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. I love this verse in Ecclesiastes. It's good to grasp one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. So I do see a lot of these topics are topics of balance. I think if you're going to be a linchpin man with your church and your work and your family, you're going to have to be a man of balance because you're going to feel a pull. If you don't feel that pull between all three, I would suggest you're out of balance. Something's out of balance. If you're like, well, I never, ever, ever, ever feel any pull from my wife and kids, I go, that's a red flag or whatever area, you should feel that tension. My work, my family, my church, they all need me because I'm the linchpin. I need to work with them all, but I need to balance it. And again, our world's like, forget family, forget church, pour your life in your job and have a hobby. Be a really good golf player and we'll see you in heaven. God is smart though. He knows that if a man is killing it with his work and his church and his family, that man can leave the church. And so that's why those pastoral qualifications talk about those areas. So I want to end with a quote by Alex Strout. Go to the last page of your handout packet. He's a pastor in Colorado. He said, some people say you can't expect laymen, last page, very last page, below the list of books. Do you see it? There we go. You can't expect laymen, that's you guys, men that aren't work paid by the church, to rear their families, work all day, and shepherd a local church. The statement is simply not true. Many people rear families, work, and give substantial hours of time to community service, clubs, athletic activities, and religious institutions. The cults 
have built a large lay movement that survived primarily because of the volunteer time and efforts of their members. We Bible-believing Christians have become a soft, lazy, soft, paper-to-be-done group of Christians. It's positively amazing how much people can accomplish when they're motivated to work toward the goal they love. I've seen people build and remodel their houses in their spare time, for example. I've also seen men discipline themselves to gain a phenomenal knowledge of Scripture. The real problem lies then not in men's limited time and energy, but in false ideas about work, Christian living, life's priorities, and especially Christian ministry. My prayer is that God will make you 60 men into linchpins with our church, with your wife and kids, and your job. Amen? Amen. I'll pray. Lord, we thank you for... God, I am so encouraged to have all these men in this room. I thank you, God, that you are working in this church in a powerful way, and this parenting conference is an example of it. I do just, I just lift my brothers up to you. I ask that you would show them how they can just be absolute linchpins at their job, with their family, and with our church. Lord, we pray that our church would be full of so many men that have pastoral character qualities in their life, that we would be rich with men that are qualified to lead this body in a mighty way. Lord, we thank you for all you're doing. I do thank you for my brothers. I ask that you would strengthen them and use them in a mighty way. We say all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.